You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. All right. Good morning. Everybody got the friendlies out? <laughs> All right. Yeah, so uh, that song uh, is awesome about being liberated, set free. So the question we're going to be talking about this morning is we're set free, so what do we do now? We're set free. We're no longer slaves, so how do we live as free people? What do free people do? Um, what should it look like? So that's where we're at today. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Some of you have been waiting for this moment through the book of Ephesians. You've been uh, patiently listening to us talk about doctrine and what God did, and you've been waiting for the chance to, like, what do we do? So uh, that's today. Um, you might get a little bit more than what you wanted, <laughs> so buckle up, buttercups. It's going to be a bumpy ride, so... Let's start off. I have a, a slide here I want you guys to look at. Um, I have a picture I want you to see here. It's from uh, my wedding to my wife nine years ago. Is it up there? Okay, because I can't see it. So Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, we've been married for nine years now. And when you look at that picture, let's play Sesame Street, which one of these is not like the other. What's different about one person in that picture? Everybody's wearing one color except for a different person who's wearing a different color, right? <laughs> We're in a college ministry, so we have lots of weddings, which I love being part of Next Generation Churches. You have lots of babies, lots of weddings. It's awesome. Life is happening in a church like this who's trying to reach the next generation. So if you're a girl and you get invited to a wedding, what's the one color you don't wear? Right. Because <laughs> white means something on a wedding day, right? That means that she's the bride, that means she gets to do whatever she wants that day. <laughs> I mean, she's the bride, and she's the only one wearing white because that color, those clothes, mean something. Clothes mean something, especially on big occasions. A lot of you college students one day will be very excited to wear a very weird black gown and a very weird hat, and you only wear it because you're graduating. Those clothes mean something. Who's graduating that day? The people in the funny hat. <laughs> and that's the last day they will ever wear that hat. <laughs> It's not a fashion statement. People aren't wearing it to the club. It's not a thing. It's only associated with a major life event, a major life transition. So today we're going to be talking about a change of clothes that's associated with now that we're free people, what should our lives look like? What should our clothes look like? What should we be clothed in? And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in verses 17 through 32. Today we've been marching through the book of Ephesians, that's where we're at today. It's what we do here at Anthem. We just go through the Bible verse by verse. And so let me first read the first uh, 17 through 24. That's going to kind of set the stage, and then we'll get into some very specific application in the second half from 25 to 32. So it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." The big takeaway from today is, and the big point of the passage is, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. See that in verse 17. If you're an underliner highlighter, that's the big idea. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You cannot call yourself a Christian 
and continue to live like somebody who doesn't know God. You had a way that you used to live in bondage in Egypt. You walked through the, the Red Sea, parted, God saved you. Don't live like you used to. Don't live like you live in Egypt. Live like a free person. Live like somebody who knows God. And that has some very specific applications we're going to get to. But the first question I want to ask is, why do some people not change? Why do some people call themselves Christians and still live like they used to? Why do they live like people who don't know God? The text gives us three reasons we're going to look at quickly here. The three of them are going to be ignorance, defiance, and arrogance. They all rhyme. That's <laughs> what preachers do. Ignorance, defiance, arrogance. We think like that for some reason. So the first one, I'll put up with a slide. Ignorance. I see that in verse uh, Ephesians 20 through 21. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So some of you call yourself Christians, but your life hasn't changed because nobody ever told you you were supposed to. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry if you were in a church or you listened to some kind of radio ministry and they never told you you were supposed to change. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the text says you're supposed to. It says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So if that's you, everybody, you know, like the, my kids, one, two, three, eyes on me. Everybody look here. You must no longer walk like people who don't know God. Clear? After, so some of you have heard this a thousand times, but you weren't listening. So some of you are ignorant because you weren't paying attention. Some of you are ignorant because nobody ever told you. After today, if you do not change, it's because, it's not because of ignorance. I just told you. It's because you're either defiant or arrogant. So let's look at those next two ones. Defiant. The second one, I see that in verse Ephesians 4.22. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. The Bible says, put off your old self. And you say, nah, I like my old life. I like my old clothes. I'm used to them. It's what I'm used to. That wedding day um, with my wife, if you are aware of this, brides don't spend all their day in their wedding dress. They wear nasty clothes initially because they're getting makeup and hair and stuff's being sprayed everywhere. And, and so they spend most of their day in clothes that are raggedy because you wear like painting clothes. Most of your day of your wedding day, it's less, you're getting your nails did, your hair did. <laughs> you're getting lots of things did to you. So, um, so you spend your wedding day in nasty clothes. My wife, uh, prior to the, the ceremony, the photographer said, well, go to the bathroom. This is the last chance you're going to have. <laughs> the rest of the night, you're in your dress taking pictures, and it's cake eating and smashing your face. And all the, you know the wedding routine. So you better do it now. So she goes to the bathroom with the help of all of her wedding attendants because you have this dress on. And as she's going, she realizes she still has her ratty old clothes on underneath her wedding dress. She forgot to take her old clothes off. <laughs> so can you imagine if she had gone down the aisle wearing like nasty old shorts that say cheerleader on them. <laughs> None of you would have known, but she would have known and she would have felt gross about it, being like, ugh, I, went, I got married in nasty old cheerleading shorts. <laughs> That's less than ideal. <laughs> the Bible says to put off your old life. You can't just call yourself a Christian and say, I'm going to add Jesus to my current life. I'm just going to keep doing what I do, but I'm going to add Jesus. He's my co-pilot. I do what I want, but now he's part of my life. You have to take off your old life. If you put clean clothes over dirty clothes, it makes the clean clothes smell dirty. It doesn't just fix the problem. Putting clean over dirty doesn't fix it. It just makes the clean gross. And so that's the first thing. Some people have not changed their clothes because they want to put Jesus in their life, but they don't want him to be the only thing that they're wearing. They want to stay living in their old clothes because they're used to them, because they like them, because they forgot they were about to get married. 
But luckily, somebody made her aware of it, and she realized, oh, no. So she had a chance to fix that before. The Bible says, you must put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Former. Do you have a life that used to be you? You have to have a former life to be a Christian. You have to have a way that you used to live. So your current life must become a former life if you're going to become into Jesus. If you are currently not a Christian, you need to put that life off and put on Jesus. So that's one, that's the second reason why some people haven't changed their clothes, because they like their old ones. And the third one is arrogance. I have a slide for that too. Ephesians 4.24, it says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Bible says, put on a new life. And you say, no thanks, I got it. I'll just clean these up. Can you imagine if my wife is in the bathroom prior to her wedding, realizes she has these nasty clothes on and says, you know what, take the wedding dress off. Get me a Tide pen and some yarn. We'll stitch these bad boys up and I'll walk down the aisle in these nasty old cheerleading shorts. That's what I'm going to wear for my wedding. Imagine if that's what she said. She's like, who needs a wedding dress? I have these old clothes and I can get them clean enough that I'll walk down the aisle and nobody will be able to tell the difference. Yeah, they're ratty old clothes and shorts. Who, who would do that? No bride would do that. Special clothes for special occasions. You don't just clean up your old ones and make them look as nice as possible and call that your wedding dress. You don't just clean up your old clothes. And some people are trying to do that. Instead of putting on righteousness that God is offering, they just work so hard to clean up their old life and to fix it, and they call that good. But Scripture is saying put off, put on, off, on. Two things that need to happen in order if you're going to walk like somebody who actually knows God and not like you used to when you're in slavery. So that's the big idea, putting off, putting on. So we can get very specific. Some of these might not touch you, but there's five of them. So one of them probably will. So hang in there. Um, so the first one is Ephesians 4.25. The first very specific thing he's going to talk about. Put off falsehood. Put on telling the truth. Very specific piece of clothes he wants you to take off. Very specific piece of clothes he wants you to put on. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, In the Greek theater, uh, they have um, actors who would go and they would play parts of people, but because they didn't have microphones and things, and because it was small and a bunch of people would want to attend, they would have to wear stuff on stage in order for people to... Uh, see what they were doing. I have a slide of like the mask that they were wearing. You've probably seen them before. Is it up there? Okay. You've seen those before, comedy, tragedy, right? So this guy's wearing this big thing. Like, he's happy. I can see that from way back there. <laughs> this guy's sad. I can see that from way back there. You wore a mask. <clears throat> and the word for those Greek actors, the word was hypocrites. That's the word, hypocrite. They were pretending to be somebody that they weren't. Only it was accepted because everybody knew that they were just acting. But that's where we get the word hypocrite from when you act like something that you're not. You're being a hypocrite, you're acting, you're wearing a mask, you're pretending to be something that you aren't. And so many Christians wear a mask. Everybody you met today was fine. You didn't meet one single person who wasn't fine or good. Everybody is good, everybody's fine, especially on Sunday. And some of you definitely aren't. And you know that you aren't. But you wear a mask because you don't want to put people out. You don't want to be genuine. It's too hard. And I get it. I mean, I get it. I'm a person. <laughs> I know what it's like to have things you'd rather not talk about. But he's saying put off falsehood. Stop pretending that you're okay. 
Jake Each, a pastor in our network at Veritas Therapist, said it this way. Uh, Salt Company Columbia tweeted it out. <laughs> if you want to follow them, they tweet great stuff every once in a while. Uh, they, not because they don't tweet bad stuff, but they just don't tweet very often. <laughs> um, but he said it this way. He said, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to fake being okay when you're really not okay. That's a lot of okays. <laughs> so I'll say it again because you've got to follow through. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to fake being okay when you're really not okay. It's not okay to fake it. When you do that, you give off an image in your connection group, in your community, that you're doing great. And people around you who are suffering don't know how to talk to you about it because you look like you're doing great and they don't think that you would relate to them. Or they worry that they might not really be a Christian or that they're not doing very well. And unbelievers look at you and they're like, well, I know that I'm messed up, but this person is a Christian and they've got their life all together. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could be like that. I wish I could, but I think they're a different kind of person than I am. And it's only because they're wearing masks. We need to put on telling the truth. And primarily what he has in focus here is tattling on yourself. You need to tattle on yourself. You need to tell the truth, especially in connection group, especially in community, because you make Jesus look awesome. Because you say, the Lord saves sinners, and I'm one of them. You make Jesus look like he's done all the work. You make him look important in your life because you actually rely on him. It's not something you did 10 years ago, and now you're kind of coasting. You depend on him in the moment right now. And that only happens when you put off falsehood and you put on telling the truth. So that's how we deal with our sin inside. So it goes on to say how we're going to treat sin that we see in other people. So that's the second one, Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Put off apathy, put on anger. This is not one you're going to hear very often. <laughs> For some reason, Christians forget how to read the Bible when they get to this verse, because it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. For some reason, Christians read that and say, don't be angry. It doesn't say don't be angry. It says, be angry and don't sin. It says, be angry, but be careful, is what it says. And so many Christians read that as don't be angry. He's talking about it in the context of community. The verse right before it, he says, for we are members of one another, therefore be angry. And the reason why I chose the word apathy is because apathy is the opposite of love, not hate. People think that hate is the opposite of love, but hate still cares. Hate still has a horse in the race. Hate still cares, but apathy doesn't care. Apathy just turns you loose. Do whatever you want. What do I care? I love you too much to tell you that you're wrong. Put off apathy. Apathy is like grandparents babysitting. <laughs> For some reason, ba grandparents babysit, rules just go away. <laughs> There can be rules, but if grandparents are watching, it's ice cream for breakfast, it's <laughs> stay up late, whatever, because grandparents' job is to what grandchildren? Their job is to do what to them? To spoil them, right? Why would you want to spoil something? Have you ever eaten eat spoiled food? It's horrible. <laughs> like, why is spoiling kids a good idea? Like, I don't know, if, you're, if you've ever been near spoiled things, they're bad, they're rotten. That's what the word means. <laughs> so anyways, apathy. Put off apathy. Like, rules matter. Sin matters, especially sin. And especially with kids. I have a lot of them. <laughs> if you don't know me, I have five kids, and they're all under seven years old. And they sin a lot because they're just like me. But they're really cute when they do it, unlike me. <laughs> like, I'm not particularly very cute when I sin. I'm a grown man, so it looks ugly. <laughs> but when they sin, it's super cute. But it's still sin, and it matters. And it's not good enough to be apathetic, be like, <laughs> 
it's so cute, or I love them so much. I mean, how could I possibly break their heart by telling them that they're wrong? If they are wrong, you can love them by lovingly telling them that they are wrong. Now, that's why it says be angry, but be careful. Because it's not just a license for Christians to be buttheads, because we've all seen that. Right? We've all seen Christians who just read, like, they don't even know this verse, but they just have to feel like they have a license to be angry at everybody for how bad they suck. <clears throat> and the problem is they're only half right. <laughs> like, most people do suck, myself included. But they don't love them enough to actually care enough to walk them through the process of what it would look like to change. So Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, I don't have a slide for this, but listen to this. It says, better is an open rebuke. This Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. If you're in community, if you're in discipleship, if you're mentoring somebody or being mentored by somebody, write this down. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You don't need to look out for people who call you on stuff. You need to look out for people who never question anything you do. The Bible says the most dangerous people in your life are the people who've never told you that you're wrong. If they're always supportive in the sense that they support everything you do without supporting you as a person, they just support whatever you do without question, those are the dangerous people to look out for in your world. The best friends you have are the people that say, I love you so much, I can't watch you be stupid right now. Or do you know you're being stupid? I love you so much, what are you doing? That's love. The Bible says that is love. That's what Jesus says. He shows up and be like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like He loved enough to come and do something about it. Apathy would be if God just stayed in heaven and was like, meh. It's fine. I mean, they'll figure it out. Or it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's cute. It's cute when my kid sins, so whatever. Well, I'm not going to send my son to die because it's not that big of a deal. It is that big of a deal. Jesus had to come and die for sin. It's not a small thing. And if you love someone, you can't watch sin destroy them without doing something about it. My challenge to you would be to put on anger that out of love that's like, I'm so mad at what's happening to you because the way that you've been deceived, the way that sin is tearing you apart. And I love you so much, I want to confront that because I love you. Apathy sits aside and says, I love them so much, I don't want to make them feel bad. I love them so much, who could ever say anything? I just accept them as they are, even if God says something different. Okay, number three. Ephesians 4, 28. Put off taking advantage of others put on taking responsibility for others. The verse says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Have you ever seen like a heist movie? I mean, there's a million of them, like all the Ocean's 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, whatever, how many there are, or any of the Italian job or anything. Like two thirds of the movie is them planning to do something bad. Like most of the movie, they're, they're practicing. They're trying to figure out how, how to steal from somebody else. Like they spend most of the movie trying to figure it out. And then the last, half, like the last third or last quarter of it is just them executing the plan, like pulling it off. Imagine if they used, like in so Ocean's Eleven, you have 11 grown men. Imagine if they spent all that time like getting regular jobs. <laughs> Think about how much money as a group <laughs> they could have honestly made together. But instead, they spent three, you know, two-thirds of the movie trying to screw somebody over. <laughs> like, we spend so much time, so much creativity, so much energy trying to shortcut things that if we just put it to honest work, we would have probably the equal thing, but we would be honest in the process. We would have our integrity to keep and save in the process. The thief and the honest worker have two things in common. They both work really hard, 
Like, it's hard work to steal other people's stuff. They don't just let you have it. <laughs> like, you have to work two-thirds of the movie just to try and figure it out. They both work hard. So does the honest worker. He works hard. She works hard. The other thing they have in common is they both want something they don't have. They want, the honest worker wants food for his kids that he doesn't have right now, so he has to work hard to get the food so he can feed his kids. The thief wants the Porsche that he doesn't have, so he works hard to steal it from somebody else because they're not just giving those things away, especially if it's somebody else's. <laughs> the two things they have in difference, though, the big differences between them, they have that in common. They both work hard. They both want something out there that they don't have, but the thing that they have difference is how they go about their goals and what they do with it once they have it. The thief cheats, steals, shortcuts, and then they selfishly spend it on themselves. They take that Porsche on a joyride and crash it into a tree because whatever. Like, it's just fun for them. They spend it on themselves, whereas the honest worker works hard, honestly, to get what they want. And then when they have it, they share it with other people. I work harder than I have to. Sorry. I work harder than I have to because it's not just me that I'm feeding. I'm feeding a wife, and I'm feeding five kids. I have to earn more than I need for myself, and I have overflow. And then I work harder than that because I want to be able to give to the church. Like if you have, if you're taking responsibility for other people, you work hard because you need more because you want to give. Giving, giving is a luxury. It comes from the product of honest, hard work, and you work really hard. Not everybody gets to give stuff away, only the people who work really hard. Fourth thing, Ephesians 4.29, put off criticism, put on counsel. Verse reads, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Have you ever been, I don't know if they still do this anymore, but in high school, you know, there's always that section where you dissect a frog. Um, and like, you know, you have a, you're giving a, a knife to like a kid. who's <laughs> like, there's not like, they're not an expert at cutting things open in general. But like, they go about it and they do their best job and whatever. The main point is you get the thing open. And then you learn all kinds of stuff about the frog because you cut them open. When you dissect a frog, you learn a lot about a frog. But you kill it in the process. That frog has to die in order for you to get that much in detail about it. So you can learn a lot by dissecting somebody, but you will murder them in the process. You can tear somebody apart and isolate every little thing about them that you don't like about them. So this goes back to the other one. It's not just a blank check to go and rail on everybody for all the stuff you don't like. Anger, is, anger from the previous example is surgical. If I'm mad at the sin in your life, the cancer in your life, I will cut you open carefully with precision because I want to get the cancer out. This is talking about just dissecting, just like a high school kid with a scalpel. You just kill people in the process of trying to cut them open. And it's critical, and it tears people apart. And for some reason, people feel like the best way to build other people up is to tear them down. You've heard that before, like I just need to tear them down so I can build them back up. Criticism doesn't build people up. So if, you, if that's your strategy for how you deal with your friends or your kids, or your parents, it doesn't work. When you cut people to pieces, it doesn't build them up. Counsel builds people up. Put on counsel. What I mean by that is the verses say here, as fits the occasion, builds up, that it may give grace to people here. If your goal is to give grace to people, your counsel isn't just nice words like, oh, turn that frown upside down. That's not counsel. That's worse. <laughs> Have you ever been sad or hurting and somebody says, well, there's kids in Africa who are starving? It's like, that's true, but 
I mean, that doesn't really affect my thing, <laughs> you know? Like, yes, other people have it bad too, so I guess I'm, my problem isn't real then, or it just goes away. That's not counsel. That's not giving somebody perspective on their situations. Counsel should be specific and timely. Specific and timely. To the person, to the situation. You shouldn't have just these broad, general things that you just throw at every situation that comes up. That's lazy. Christians should care more about their friends to give them honest counsel, as fits the occasion. It should make sense with what's going on in their life right now. Know the person, know the situation, give counsel. All right, number five, Ephesians 4, 30 through 32. Put off bitterness, put on forgiveness. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God gets it. You've been hurt by people. Legitimately. People have hurt you. They've sinned against you. I believe it. God gets it. He has been sinned against as well. He knows what it's like to be hurt by people. They should not have done what they did. God agrees with you. They should not have done that. He agrees that it hurts when it happens but you must forgive them. People who struggle with bitterness can immediately call to mind that person right now. The second I bring up hurt, you can hear the words that they said to you right now in your head. If you struggle with bitterness, you know exactly who that person is. You know exactly what they said or did. You can see it. You relive it often. You think about it whenever their name comes up. You have to forgive them. Matthew 6, 15 says it this way. I can't say it any stronger than the way Jesus said it. I have a slide for it. He says, if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. If you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. If you call yourself a Christian and you have transitioned from the slavery to the freedom that is in Christ, you must forgive other people. You must free yourself up from that binding bitterness that is on your soul. And you have this person in a jail cell on your soul and you just punish them and beat them up. And you're like, yeah, take that. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. Most of, for most of you, that person has no idea that you're mad at them and it doesn't hurt them at all. They're freely out there doing whatever they want, but you are the one who is bound up with all the bitterness and rage. You are the one who is enslaved to this bitterness that's inside you. You must put on forgiveness. And forgiveness is not a feeling. You don't have to feel great about them. You don't have to feel happy thoughts when their name comes up. But it is a choice to forgive. You make the decision. I forgive them. And as often as you think of it, you choose to forgive them. You make a decision. You say, no, God forgave me. I choose to forgive them. I'm not going to listen to my feelings. My feelings feel anger. My feelings feel hurt. And those are legit. But you have to choose to forgive. It says here that, that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You may still be grieved by the sins that have happened to you, but the Holy Spirit is grieved, but he still chooses to forgive. He may be grieved, but he still chooses to forgive. It still hurts God when you defame him, when you just walk away, when you treat him like he's nothing. It still hurts. He knows what that's like, but he chooses to forgive because he's made a decision. If you are forgiven, you forgive other people. That is a quality that forgiven people have. It's hard. It's not easy. It costs Jesus. It costs God his son. It costs Jesus his life. It's not easy to forgive people, but you have to do the hard work to do it. You have to be like God in that regard. So last thing I'm going to leave you with, that's a lot of specific application. <laughs> it's like he's been waiting for four chapters, and now he just vomited everything he could think that you're supposed to do. So I get it. Like, I get it. That's a lot. That's why I said you've got to buckle up. It's, it's a lot. I get it. 
Well, let me leave you with this. <clears throat> Why is your shower dirty? <laughs> like, your shower is dirty. <laughs> Why? It cleans things, right? Why is your shower dirty? Because in order to get something clean, something else has to get dirty. In order to get something clean, something else has to get dirty. In order to get you clean, that water has to wash over you and it goes down the drain dirty. That soap starts off clean, it gets dirty. Your shower gets soap scum on it because it's getting you clean. But it has to get dirty in order for that to happen. That dirt has to go somewhere. Jesus took on your dirty rags. He took on your sin. You have dirty old clothes. You have nasty old cheerleader shorts. I know that's a surprise for some of you, especially the guys. <laughs> you didn't know you had old cheerleader shorts, but you do in this example. <laughs> Jesus took those. Jesus took your dirty so that you could be clean. I want to throw that picture one, one last time up here of our wedding day. My wife is wearing white, not because she's pure, but because Jesus is pure. Not because she's holy, but because Jesus is. And Revelation 19 ends the entire Bible by saying that those who get invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb are granted to wear white. It's not their white clothes that they get to wear. That's why at weddings the bride wears white. She is symbolizing the end of all times when the bride is ushered to her husband, Christ. And she gets to wear white. It means something. Those clothes mean something. It means that Jesus let her have his clothes. But that, mean, that meant that her clothes had to go somewhere. So Jesus took those on. He put on our dirty rags and put off his white clothes so that we could put those on and put off our old life. In order to get something clean, something else has to get dirty. We're not saved because we change our clothes. We're saved because Jesus changed his clothes. And if you put your faith in what Jesus did for you, that is what saves. And in light of that, your life should look like something but we're not saved because we do any of this stuff today. If you go out here and you put off bitterness and put on forgiveness, that's not what saves you. The fact that Jesus took off his clothes, putting faith in that is what saves you. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son uh, to die for me, to take my dirty old rags and to work hard to earn white clothes so that he could give those to me to make a, a trade. And what we wear means something. And if we call ourselves Christians, if we say we know you, it should look like something. We must no longer walk like we used to do. I pray that people in this room would have a former life that they could look back on and that they would openly tell their friends about in order to make you look great, that they wouldn't hide who they are, they wouldn't put on masks, they wouldn't just be apathetic about sin and they're seeing their friends, that they'd work hard to, in order to give, to have extra, to be generous, to give away. I pray that they would be warm and counseling towards their friends, that they would know you and through that knowledge they would share what's true with other people, building people up through grace, not tearing people down through criticism and just cutting people apart. And thank you most of all that you did all this for us so that all we have to do is put our faith in your perfect putting off and your perfect putting on and that through that we are saved. In your name we pray. Amen.